this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey, this episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder System. I had the opportunity to interview Stephanie Breedlove the other day. She sold her $9 million payroll company for a cool $54 million. How does she do it? She focused on the eight things that drive company value. Things like what we call the Switzerland structure, monopoly control, recurring revenue, all things you're going to evaluate in your own business using the Value Builder score. It takes about 15 minutes to complete the survey. Go to valuebuilder.com. So Jill Nelson sold a majority interest in her company, Ruby Receptionists, for a cool $38.8 million. Not bad for an $11 million company that essentially answers phones. But a company was much more than that. If you listen to this interview, you're going to hear how Jill invested significantly in technology as a way to differentiate her service from others and a way to scale up her service much more quickly than competitors. You're also going to hear how she used debt and an angel investment, which she was able to deliver a 25,000% return for. Not a bad deal for that guy. Uh, You'll hear lots more about the negotiation itself. And I want you to listen to Jill's demeanor as she describes the story. I can tell that she used her good cop persona to her advantage in the negotiation. Uh, she put her CFO and her investment banker in the line as the bad cop, but she remained positive. And I think that was a key to keeping relations going as she negotiated through what inevitably was an amazing exit. To tell you the rest of the story, here is Jill Nelson. Jill Nelson, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you, John. I'm happy to be here today. Yeah, you guys are up in Portland, Oregon, rain country. Tell me a little <laughs> bit about Ruby yes. Receptionist. Like, what 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 does this company do? Well, we um, are the friendly um, group of real receptionists who help small businesses grow um, by being a, a first impression to the our customers um, telephone experience. So we're a virtual receptionist company and we serve about 6,500 small businesses across the country. So who, like, uh, who actually wants somebody live to answer their phone these days? <laughs> well, um, at first, sometimes small businesses think, hey, the phone call is dead and, and we'll get one of those virtual PBX companies to um, handle our phone calls. But in fact, um, phone calls are actually on the rise. And um, something like 29% of phone calls uh, lead to a sale. And if you are not there to answer the phone and provide a wonderful experience, chances are your callers are going um, onto, the, onto your competitor. Um, and it's, it's really the rise of using mobile as the main search device is causing phone calls uh, to be on the rise. So, so I own a, 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 whatever, a plumbing company and I've got three guys on the road, three vans, and, yeah. and I want a friendly voice to answer the phone. If I'm on the job, I can't answer the phone. I would hire your company to, to be that friendly voice. Absolutely. And we would be able to greet your caller. We would have all kinds of information about your business. We would be able to transfer calls, even to your um, plumbers who might be on the road. And um, and we integrate with your mobile phone. So you, you have your messages and availability at the ready. And we're integrated with your contacts and calendar. Now, were you- so it's very seamless. 
Were you also getting into like the whole VA virtual assistant world where you're providing sort of broader set of virtual assistant sort of, or did you stick strictly with sort of front end reception? Yeah. So Ruby is a 14-year-old company. And back in the day um, when I started it, I wanted to do a full, actually, I wanted to do an executive suites concept with not just assistant service, but um, conference space and offices as well. Um, But I didn't have any money or business experience, so I couldn't find a landlord willing to provide that for me. Um, So I did provide all things administrative. Um, the receptionist piece took off and the administrative piece was really hard to scale, especially back then. Um, so we, over the years, have gotten more and more focused. And today we're really focused on that, that um, the revenue side of the equation, helping small businesses win new customers. Um, and we partner with some wonderful assistant organizations um, to help with the back office. I, I love this story because we're always talking about the importance of, of actually jettison, getting rid of all the services that are not scalable, that you can't teach employees. And and you guys have done that. You, you've gone from where you were offering like a wide set of services to just focused on on the on the inbound calls and the, and the sales piece, yeah. which is great. That's right. So 15 years, give us the trajectory. Over that time, how, how big did you get the company? Like sort of what was the revenue when you went to went to try to sell? Yeah, so started very small and it was, I guess, year 11 in business and we just grew steady, steady, steady at about an average um, growth rate of 40%. And so the the year prior to the decision to sell the majority of Ruby, we had done 11 million. And then the current year, we started the transaction. We started the search for um, the right investment partner um, in about, uh, I believe it started in May and it, it um, took the entire year. Of, uh, it closed the very end of 2014 and we did about 15 million that year. Got it. Got it. Excellent. And so that revenue is coming from what's annual subscriptions, monthly payments you're getting from these small business owners. Like just give us a sense of where the 11 million was coming from. Yeah. So all of our revenue is subscription based and it's all recurring monthly revenue. And, um, and what we've done over the years is we built our own technology platform so that we could scale our service. We actually ended up having to build it because we wanted to be exceptional at what we did. And we realized without the technology to help us be able to, you know, make sure we knew if it was morning or afternoon, depending on the time zone, um, we needed our own technology to do it. But, but ironically, that that's, that's re- that really uh, redefined us from a services company into a tech-enabled service company, which um, put us in the interest of a whole different um, set of investors. You know, as an aside, I can tell you were trained at one time in your life as a receptionist because I can hear you smiling through the <laughs> phone. Like I'm literally hearing you smile oh, as you talk. Thank you. Which thank you must you. train your guys to deliver, right? I mean, that's infectious for sure. We... We do. We actually, we probably don't train the friendly. We hire the friendly, but we certainly train the language. Um, so there's all kinds of um, word choice that can help a caller feel heard and feel cared Give about. Um, Give me an example. What's that? Give me an example. Um, so if, instead of saying no, we would say, let me find out for you. Um, we um, always, we never say you need to or you, you have to or like you need to call back. Um, we say, oh, what I can do for you is take down your number and I'd be happy to have, you know, 
somebody return your call. So we, we always keep it positive and we always guide the caller and we always keep it on the what we can do rather than what we can't do. Love it. Love it. So you get to 11 million in these recurring contracts and subscriptions. By the way, at this point, who is the we? I mean, are you, uh, do you have multiple shareholders in the business? Have you, have you taken in sort of venture capital at any point in the road? Yeah. So uh, very, very early on, um, there was a gentleman who was a complete stranger who called me out of the blue, who was going to start a competing business and wanted to see what we were doing. And I welcomed him for some strange reason. And he ended up saying, hey, you know, this isn't my thing, but you're, you're really onto something. Um, do you need any working capital? And he took a, so he ended up becoming a very, very, very early investor for a very small amount and then provided a large loan to the company so that we could actually evolve our technology. And that was like year one when we were um, something like $17,000 a month in, in sales. Um, so and, it was really odd. <laughs> and and, then, um, and yeah. when you say small, do you, do you mean uh, he, 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 he gave you a small amount of money or, or yes. he, he took a small amount of equity? Um, he took he took a minority investment for a, a pretty uh, small amount of of capital, but it was really it was you know it was what we needed to actually keep the doors open um, because we were we were taking off, but we hadn't yet reached economies of scale, and I was running out of money, and our uh, phone system that we started on had maxed out, and so um, it really was this sort of. Um, odd person coming into my life at a, you know, just the perfect time. And it was a small amount of money. He got out at the transaction that happened in 2014 and got something like a 25,000% return on investment. (laughs) So that it was a very small amount. I'll just say that he invested. (laughs) Well, that must have worked out quite well for that. uh... It did. And so, you know, sometimes you go, you look back on that and go, oh, you know, if I had to do that, over again, you know, would I have done it differently? But at the, at, on the other hand, I couldn't say that we would be here today without that. So no regrets. Great point though. So the, the loan, which is a really interesting, so he gave you some equity. So there, some, mm-hmm. some money was, was uh, in the form mm-hmm. of equity and the loan, was that a convertible loan, which gave him the rights to buy equity? Uh, like you do a sort of VC deal or was it, was it strictly yeah. a loan with a, with an interest rate? It was strictly a loan and it was a pretty significant interest rate. Um, I mean, this was 12 years ago, so it was something like prime plus 2%, which turned out to be like eight, eight to 10%. Right. So, and that floated. Um, and, with, and he got paid back. Hmm? Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but that Sorry. floated with prime. So, so as, as, as interest rates went up and down, y- your percentage changed as well. Correct. Interesting. Interesting. So relatively, I mean, I think some people would look at Prime Plus Two and go, well, that's actually like pretty good for a young company that frankly didn't, you know, didn't have a lot of, of staying power at that time. That's a, that's a pretty, it's a pretty inexpensive loan. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I don't know that I would have qualified for um, a loan elsewhere. Now I didn't go find out. um, But, um, but yeah, we were not profitable. And again, our sales were about 17,000 a month. So it, and there wasn't a compelling story to tell yet. What out of interest, what was his recourse on that loan? If you had defaulted, not made, what, what would have happened? Um, Gosh, I, um, I would have to think back. Um, 
I honestly, I cannot remember if I had a personal guarantee or not, but certainly um, it was secured by the assets of the business. The business. He probably would have gotten yeah. the business or something. Yeah. So, yeah. so interesting. So, so the we in Ruby was you mm-hmm. um, plus this minority shareholder who'd invested mm-hmm. a little bit of money. Who else was, mm-hmm. was, was part of the we? And then I, and, and it's funny when I incorporated, I incorporated online and I filled out a form and I gave myself 80% and I gave my husband 20%. And, um, and so he also is, he's actually still a, sh- a shareholder today. He's um, no longer my husband, but that's another story, but we're um, great um, on great terms. And he still has a piece of the pie. He wasn't ready to give it up. Um and yeah, and that, and that was us. And then, um, and today it's, I still retain a, um, a, sm- a very small minority of the company. Um, and, um, and then update partners out of Washington, DC, along with Stepstone Capital acquired the majority in late 2014. Okay. So I want to talk about that. So, so you're at 11 million in annual sales. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're growing 40% a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was the trigger that that made you want to sell? Well, I think at about what, and we, so Ruby, um, we actually just celebrated being on Oregon's fastest growing companies list 10 consecutive years, only the second company in Oregon to ever do it. Um, but so we, our revenue numbers um, are published. And so at about 10, once we had that $11 million a year, I think $10 million is this mark where you start to get a lot of people's attention. You start to get the growth equity firm's attention. You start to get investment bankers' attention. And so I was fielding emails, you know, daily um, about people that were really interested and having talks with with me. And I and I ignored most of them. And then one one was really in the industry and he was quote unquote happened happened to be in town. And I met with him and he um Gates told me, he said, you know, I think your business is worth, you know, is worth this. And um, having come up through um, old fashioned business brokerage, I was like, well, I totally don't believe you. But if it's true, I'm interested. What did he say you thought the business is worth? It it was a multiple of revenue, um, somewhere between, you know, three and five um, X revenue. And and I had grown up in the traditional multiples of EBITDA. So he's he's saying he thinks your business is worth 30, 40, 50 million dollars. And you're looking at him sideways saying Mm -hmm. there's no way. Uh huh. Exactly. Then what? Um, but um, ended up, and that was really the trigger. Um, and ended up with this um, this other partner. He had a connection to a, a different investment banker who we ended up hiring. We actually did a formal process, and along with that too, you know, I had I had been in the business. Um, well, let's see, Adam. I guess that's twelve years. And at the time, I actually thought, you know, I I was starting to um, become a relatively absentee owner. Um, the business was sort of on autopilot, and I thought that perhaps um, it was time. It was time for me to exit. Um, so between this high valuation um, conversation and sort of where I was, that was what you know um, ended up. We engaged in a formal process with an investment banking company. Um, so just to be clear, the person that you met with originally that that you know put this huge number in your mind, mm-hmm. that was a potential acquirer or a potential representative, like an investment banker? 
Yeah. So the latter, the it was latter. a pro- okay. um, potential investment banker. Got it. And then did you end up hiring his or her firm or a, a, a competing firm? We actually ended up hiring a competing firm. So we had this person and then we had another firm and we, you know, we sort of looked at both firms and, and evaluated them on who best would represent us. And how, did you, choosing a different. how did you evaluate uh, your M&A professional? Like, how did you choose? I was, it was really tough. Um, but at the end of the day, um, one investment banking was more specialized in the legal services, which many of our customers are solo and small firm attorneys. And, um, and one was specialized more in technology and technology enabled services. And I think got us more excited about, and so what, you know, here I am sitting today, I'm still in the CEO seat two years later. So I actually didn't end up, um, leaving the business and what ended up happening through this process and through meeting so many Harvard MBAs looking at the business, I kind of fell back in love with the company and, and really what the future of it could be and what it could be, um, could be possible. So that investment banking firm, I just got more excited about what they thought could happen um, with the future of the company itself. Like a lot of people are going, listening to this, like shaking their heads going like, this is crazy. This is $11 million company in the personal services category, you know, like answering phones, happy, smiley face, but not huge, like crazy, like we're not landing uh, someone on Mars here. Right. We're answering no, the no. phones with a happy voice and making sure they get, yeah. you know, put like it's not like why did why did they think it was worth so much money? Well, surprisingly, um, and maybe not surprisingly when you think about it, it's actually very hard to do. And I don't know why. It's not, you know, we've we've done it all along, um, but we do. Um, we built our own technology platform that allows us not just to be friendly on the phone, but to really be able to be helpful to small business and have the right information on, at, at our fingertips. And we've developed technology and, and workflow systems so that we do answer 100% of the calls live throughout the day um, and 99% within four rings. Um, and was and that homegrown we, technology or, or did you license someone yeah. else's? Yeah. So, so by 2011, we had gotten onto entirely onto our own platform. Mm. And so then that was, and that was a piece of it too. And we had the, we had the mobile app. Um, and, but really, you know, what, where I think people saw that the company could go and that's what happened after Updata acquired the companies, they really helped us invest in their, our technology. And today it's, you know, we, you think about, um, what we're used to, we're used to ordering up personal services and have, you know, whether it's getting your groceries delivered from Instacart or, you know, dialing up a lift, um, you, um, we're used to having things exactly the way we want them, exactly when we want them by a, a person who, you know, who completely performs the task you expect. So it, the world was kind of set up for this too. Um, the fact that our market is huge, it's, it's not just local to Portland, it's 29 million small businesses. The fact that we really kind of stood alone, um, as the market leader, um, and, and that delivery of service, um, 
I think that was the thing that people looked at and go, it's hard to do. And we were really the only ones who were able to do it at scale. So they felt like we had a, um, a real competitive edge. We, we worked many, many years on building a wonderful culture too. And, and that's one of the things that I, I would say um, was so surprising is how much private equity firms actually value a culture that, that seems robust and, and set to scale and is able to deliver exceptional customer service um, because they recognize how hard that is to do. And you can't, it's, it was really our competitive edge that, um, that um, essentially update looked at and said we were kind of untouchable because of our culture that we had built. Um, so I, so all of those things together and really the opportunity in front of us um, with the help that they were um, updated themselves um, has something like 24, other portfolio companies, almost all of them in the software space. So they were really able to help us do what we um, had wanted to do, evolve into something that was much more scalable and um, and relevant to today's small business. Culture is a really interesting word to use because it means different things to different people. Mm-hmm. What was it that got gave you the the sense that Updata valued your culture beyond just the the, the lip service <laughs> the that lip. yeah you you know you think you built a great culture Jill I mean that that kind of sounds like window dressing what was it that <laughs> totally that, you know yes and we and we heard it all the time um, that oh you built this great culture and I had told my investment banker you know my this company is really um, the people that work here that's why um, I actually stuck to something for 12 years um, which is kind of a first for me um, the pride and the accomplishment is really about um, the the people here in the community that's been created so when I did decide to to sell the majority, um, I kept saying, you know, I'm not just selling to anyone. I'm not just selling to anyone. I don't need to sell. And the investment banker um, finally said, Jill, he was from Tennessee. He said, Jill, like I tell my wife, I heard you the third time. <laughs> and so it was a point that I drove home that culture, you know, somebody really needed to um, respect the culture and update. And everyone did pay lip service to it. But update it was like, hey, we can help you. Um, you, you know, build out your executive team. We can help you, you know, evolve your technology, but whatever we do, just make sure um, we don't screw up your culture. Like they really made it sound like they didn't just appreciate it. They made it sound like that's what they were buying. Um, and, and it's turned out to be true. And I, and I had some really wonderful early validation points um, in the first few months of, of, um, you know, the new relationship that, um, that was, was great. And they, and they have turned out to be that, but they were, you know, they're ex entrepreneurs themselves. And, and I think they're in it for, you know, they feel a lot of pride around the companies that they're invested in and, you know, what they're, and it's interesting. You think of maybe private equity as more transactional, but there are firms out there who are doing it because they love helping businesses grow. Um, they yeah, I'm, I'm always lot. crapping all over, private equity. So it's, it's good to, it's good to hear someone actually had a good experience, which is great, which is I awesome. Have, yeah. Which is awesome. Okay. So, um, you built this culture culture was a huge part of what differentiated you. Um, you felt tremendous loyalty to these people. How did you tell them that you were selling? Yeah. And it was, um, so early on I was in, 
courage to be public about it. And that wasn't my gut instinct. Um, having been, having again, spent a few years in the late nineties as a business broker, we always advise our sellers, you know, keep it confidential until something's closed because, you know, people will worry and won't know what, um, what, you know, what their future is. Um, but I think because I had taken that early investor and he was mostly absent. And so to the people here, they just viewed, you know, oh, you know, Jill's looking at trading out her investors or something. They didn't really worry too much. Um, and at the end of the day, that was, that was the message was, well, Hey, Jill, you got us this far. We trust you. We trust what you're doing. Um, which was a wonderful vote of confidence and a lot, you know, a lot to worry about. I did not want to mess this up and pick the wrong, wrong partner. Um, but we did, um, we closed in late December and we actually waited until January to make the announcement because we wanted everybody to be back from the holidays and, um, be able to present at a, um, company-wide staff meeting and, and, um, we invited them out, out to the staff meeting and they introduced themselves and did a little thing about who they were. And, um, again, they're great, they're great guys. So, um, there were, I think only one person, um, really came up and addressed like, you know, well, what does this mean for me? And, and, you know, what does this mean for the company? Everybody else kind of rolled with it. Um, and um, the people that were that worked directly for me I, were heavily involved throughout the entire process. I could not have gotten it to the finish line without um, them assisting on the due diligence and um, or even in the sort of the um, the management information sessions, um, they were the private equity firms that were looking at us were only firms that were investing in teams that they felt were winning teams. So it was an important piece. Interesting. So let's talk about that now. So you hire this M&A firm to mm -hmm. take you to market. Um, mm -hmm. What was that process like? Did you get multiple <laughs> offers? Did, was updated the only ones that came to the table? Yeah, no, we it was a long process and something like over 100 NDAs got signed. We ended up getting 20 something um, letters of interest, which is something less than a letter of intent. Um, and then we selected from that um, six um, companies that we felt were aligned, um, that were, you know, in a valuation range that was compelling and, um, and then, um, went through that process and weeded a few out. And then there was essentially three that came that we, um, wanted and came through with final, um, letters of intent. And, but even then, um, by the time, that happened, it was really clear, you know, in fact, the night before they came in was like, you know what, no matter what happens, um, it's updated that we want to work with. So we were able to use all of the interest to really, um, and that's where the investment bankers earned their keep. They were able to make sure that updated was able to, um, match, you know, in value what others were willing to, to, um, value the company at. Um, can, can you explain what the difference for those of us, um, the difference between a letter of interest and a letter yeah. of intent? This is a, a key point. Yeah. Well, and, and I don't actually know technically um, um, what they they mean, but letters of interest were really aren't 
probably worth the paper they're printed on. They're, they're, um, uh, there are letters of interest. They generally have a valuation range, and they're saying, you know, I'm I'm interested enough in acquiring your company in this valuation range as we, you know, as we learn more, um, and not too much else. But generally, there there'll be an outline of how a deal might be structured, which was also something really interesting to look at all the different ways that um, that um, firms will propose. Um, a deal and um and then the letters of intent were more like you you get one of those two two terms you know two agreed upon terms and conditions and you go exclusively with one party with a signed uh, um by both sides um and you work that in in good faith and go through due diligence and try to get that to close um so we only signed one letter of intent of intent. You okay. only you had three, but you signed one. Correct. Got it. And worked that one. And the other two were sort of in the wings. And how did you filter down from the 20 letters of interest down to the, to the six, or in fact, down to the three that you actually got letters of intent from? What was your filtering process yeah, like? Yeah. Well, the, the, the first, it, it was, at first it was very difficult. Everybody did on paper. Everybody really seemed the same. Um, so, um, so it was, you know, the first the first twenty something. It was really a lot about who valued the company. Um, probably the highest was probably the first consideration, and then once we looked at once we had you know general ranges, it was more like uh, relying on the investment banking company to to educate us about who the different parties were, um, and um, and and then from there it was very much. Um, we, we had all day. So from the, the six, we had all day management meetings with um, each of the firms and we would go out to dinner with them. And so you really got a sense of, of who they were. And, um, and there was very different levels of, you could, you got a sense of what they would expect of you post-transaction. You got a sense of how involved they would be um, post-transaction. You, you kind of got a little sense of what life might be like. Um, after that, and at first, I was I was actually drawn to a different company that that had they were more operational. They would have stepped in and really evolved the company, and it was kind of exciting. Um, but the more I got to know the Updata folks, the more I was like, and their message was, "Hey, you know, you run the business; it's your team, but we can help you achieve your vision." by the experience that we have with our other portfolio companies and the success we've had. Um, and at first that wasn't as compelling, but by the end it was, it was the right message for us. What range, how much range was there between the lowest offer of the 20 that you received and the highest offer? Huge range, like, huge range. Can you Different quite, companies, like, um, like the lowest was probably uh, 30% of the highest. Got it. So it, like- some were like one and a half times to five times kind of idea. Mm-hmm. That, yeah. that sort of so, range. Yeah. Yeah. And, and certain firms, you know, depending on their portfolio or how they look at your company or how they invest, um, they might be um, valuing you know, valuations. There's so many different methods. Um, they could be valuing based off of EBITDA. They could be valuing based on, um, you know, what, what they saw as being able to, how they could leverage, um, you know, what they could do with the company. Um, 
it's it's really what was it just worth to them and um everybody has different criteria and and for some we were more in their sweet spot and when a when a private equity firm has knowledge around your industry or your market they have more comfort to be able to go hey we can do something with this we know what we're getting ourselves into and that eliminates risk which makes them value the company higher so I'm going to step into some very, very dangerous waters. I'll probably okay. receive some awful okay. emails for this, but I, I have to, I have to ask this question. So, okay. so you sound very much like when I talk to you, you sound very much like a woman that I interviewed called Stephanie Breedlove, who sold a nine million dollar for a revenue company for fifty four million dollars, just like a, a, another just enormous crazy valuation, and. And when I spoke with Stephanie, I, I, I felt like I was talking, it sounds very similar to, to when we speak. And that is, and I can't think of a way to say this in a subtle way, but <laughs> you, you know, as a woman, I think you sound more, uh, slightly more deferential, slightly less up on your pedestal. Uh, you yeah. sound like you're willing to accept people's points of view, um, that you. you're, that you're not trying to sound really smart all the time. Like you <laughs> almost sound like you're, Hey, like I'd love to learn more and I'm open. And, yeah. and, and I wonder if you're doing, you, I know you're an incredibly intelligent woman. I'm wondering if you're doing that strategically so, <laughs> so that you can sound almost a little less informed than, than you actually are, or is it just your demeanor? Do you know what I'm asking? Or am I, well, maybe I'm just butchering it. I will say people have said about me, underestimate me at your own risk. Um, yeah, like I hear so that. Perhaps that's what, but you know, I, I go about my life. Um, I don't really separate my business life from my personal life. And so I, um, how I, I like to enjoy myself at work. I, you know, the, the way I would treat somebody outside of work would be the way I'd like to treat somebody at work. I, I, I just, I am me and I have my own set of values and I, um, and so I think that's just, um, what I believe is the right way to act. Um, we are, we're a very, very friendly company where we, practice we even do happiness journals on a and we have an annual happiness journal campaign i do one every um, day so i love i love that's that. wonderful yeah. and you know the the research is in the you know and not to say anything about myself but i i have seen the smartest uh people are the ones that are the most curious and and open to learning um i think um getting more information is 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 the way to go. And, and I think in the long run, I mean, there's all kinds of ways to be successful in business. And, um, the, I think I just am me and it's been successful. Um, but, but there's, I guess, but I also am very, very, very competitive and, um, we are successful here and we set high goals and we go get them. And so when, does it, Diminish your ability to play bad cop in a negotiation with the other side. Um, like you're, you're into some heated, I'd imagine, negotiations with these three. You're down. You're doing full day management meetings. I mean, does your tenor, your demeanor, your disposition, the way you speak, does it change when you're in a tough negotiation? Or are you always this sort of glass three quarters full kind of? <laughs> do you know what I mean? Though, like, is it, sure. Do you find that 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 basically brings the guard down of the other side? I, you know, 
I will say that I, I actually am uncomfortable in discomfort. And so um, I have a wonderful CFO who loves negotiating. And um, the investment banking firm that I hired did a great job of negotiating. Um, but when it comes to my core principles, um, I don't have to bluff. I don't have to um, be unkind, but they are unwavering. And so, and I do think people get that. There are just things that I am not willing to compromise on. Like what? And um, well, for example, the, the, the culture piece of it and working with investment bankers and making sure that it was the right company who we got to the finish line and that we wouldn't get to the finish line um, uh, if there wasn't the right thing that appeared. And even with the updated transaction, there were a couple of, there were a couple of moments where, um, where it looked like, and I wouldn't put it on there on themselves, but perhaps their attorneys were looking for ways to perhaps, um, bring, you know, increase a hold back or maybe, you know, try to ding a little bit of the value off the top. And this during just the a, diligence process. Yeah. And I was more like, we are, you know, you make your tees at the, you make your bets on the first tee or whatever that I'm not a golfer, but, but you, you know, you do what you say you're going to do. So when it's matters of principle, um, you, you can kind of, you can pick that up in me that, that, you know, I'm not willing to, um, you know, break a promise or, um, so there are certain things that if I care about it, um, I, I think I'm, I'm a wonderful negotiator. Um, I, I am passionate about what I believe in and I believe I am persuasive, um, but I don't like, I don't like making people uncomfortable. So, so, so do you go into a negotiation with your CFO, like proactively saying, look, I'm going to be the good cop here. You guys be the bad cop. Um, yes. If we're going to, if we're going to negotiate back and forth and it's just strictly numbers, I, I would outsource that. Absolutely. That is not my best strength for sure. Fantastic. So you're into, you get these three offers, they're outlandish multiples. You agree to up data. Talk to me about that 60 day retrading attempt. What was it like like, how did they, when I say retrading, that's industry lingo, for, which you would know clearly for you know, trying to change the deal terms. Like, what kind of deal terms were they trying to change? There was, there was just one, um, oh my gosh, the due diligence process. There were so many things that I, um, not so many, there was a few things that just um, caught me flat-footed um, that I just wouldn't have ever known. And um, at the end of the day, I think they were less of a, of a risk than perhaps the, the attorneys on the other side were, were, um, trying to make it. And so they wanted to use that to, um, to, to, I guess, retrade or increase a holdback, but, but things like, um, uh, uh, filing your cafeteria plan appropriately, you know, back when you founded to make sure that you're, um, th just the, the, the number of things that are um, scrutinized and, and, you know, in, with good, good reason. Um, but as a small business owner, when you're starting at things, you just don't think about. Um, couldn't find our original um, S-Corp filing and, you know, it called the IRS to try to get a copy of that and ultimately um, had to go with a 
certification from them or something like that, that, that we were in fact an S corp and, and, um, which was fine. We had to convert to a C corp to do this, to do the deal. Um, and, um, but things like that, that, that ended up going, well, that's the way it is. You know, you're, you're welcome to continue doing the transaction or if this, you know, if this hangs you up, then I'm sorry. Um, so the uh, so the press clippings talk about the acquisition uh, as uh, Updata making I, I think the words were a thirty eight million dollar investment to take a majority ownership in Ruby Reception or something like that. Yes. So yeah. can you talk a little bit about the structuring of that? I mean, did you just basically get a check for thirty eight million dollars to put in the bank and and go <laughs> to the beach? Yeah, I mean they they did put um, a. A few, a couple million into the business to help finance um, its growth, um, especially on the technology side. Um, but yeah, most, you know, I sold um, a majority of my of my shares, and um, and the structure of that that it was probably you know the tax structuring was a was a big piece of the um, big piece of the um, negotiating process, trying to get it, you know, in the best um, form for both sides. And, um, and then there was a, a, a reasonable small hold, hold back for a year and which ended up um, getting released um, as promised. And, um, but yeah, other than that, it was a big, big check that or a big amount that got wired. It was great. It was like, very exciting. Why are you still there? <laughs> I, I don't give me some baloney about oh I believe in the vision and mission and like like I, why are you still there that was 2014 um well they I mean that originally that was that was a condition of the deal right but that's um, passed I I will say I did I fell back in love with the business um talking about this vision of of especially the customer facing technology that we've built since then um it's and just looking at the opportunity and you know I still have a a small um piece of the pie and in in theory the next transaction still it could even still be a bigger um a bigger transaction, even for me with my small minority, because the business has continued to thrive. We've more than doubled uh, since that time. And, um, and again, that um, what we have, what we now offer, including uh, phone numbers, and you can actually call out from our app and it publishes your business ID. So you don't have to, you don't have to give away your mobile phone. Cool. Um, there's just all kinds of things that, that was like, wow, we really could be this, this business hold name, um, we could be the next QuickBooks. And, um, and then they helped me get this amazing executive team and wow, your job, your job just changes so much when you have highly skilled leaders, um, that have done this before that come in and, and it just, it's fun. Um, were you wealthy? Like, did you come from a wealthy family? I mean, did you have a lot of money growing up? I did not. I did not. My my father was a civil engineer and he worked for the county and the Department of Public Works. And my mom was a stay-at-home mom and she was an artist. And um, and yeah, and uh, she went through some tough times and I actually financially supported her. And um, so, no, this is, it's, yes, I'm in a, a new, new territory to have financial How, how does that feel? It feels really um, 
it feels lovely to have that security. I feel incredibly grateful and lucky that um, that the thing that I'm good at actually has financial value associated with it. And then I also, of course, feel an obligation to um, I just when I'm done with this, I want to help other people um, be able to um, launch and run successful businesses because that's really what got me out of, you know, that created the opportunity for me. So, um, you know, anyone can do it. And um, I get it that access to capital is critical and certainly um, having those, those basic business lessons that you have to learn along the way, those two things, um, that's, you know, that's why I want to go help other people. Describe for me the day you told that minority investor that you took on all those years ago that that you'd had this liquidity event like what was that phone call like or did you do it in person oh no he was he was involved in the get-go from the decision um but um he was he was incredibly um incredibly happy on the on the day um we we closed and um and yeah, no, it was over the phone and, um, it was one of those, you know, who would have thought, and then he's like, you know, what's next and can I invest in your next thing? <laughs> so was there any part of you along the way that, that, that motive that you were like, were you motivated at all along the way to, to wanting to do well by that investment that he, you knew that he had taken a risk on you from the, you know, in the early days and that you wanted to prove that was a good risk? Um, you know, so Many, so after the, I would say after the first five years that he was in, we actually started, we were S Corp. So we were making distributions from our net income. Our net income was, was very healthy. So he had more than um, made back his investment um, multiple fold. So um, it wasn't necessarily that, necessarily that um, but I am, I'm proud that I was a good, I was a good bet. And I am thankful that he um, saw that um, early on. What I will say is having investors um, probably helped me be more fiscally responsible along the way. If it was just left up to me, up to me, I probably would have spent all of our profits on the business because that's where I spend my day and, you know, who, you know, um, want it to be a nice place and, um, and, you know, spend it on the things you care about, like training or, you know, celebrations or, you know, business trips. And, um, but having that partner actually helps you, um, be more disciplined about <sighs> It's, it's a great, a great insight for sure. Man, this has been an incredible interview. I was so grateful for oh, you being so you. transparent and, oh, uh, my pleasure. uh, it's, it's, it's a great to, to hear the story. So where can people learn about you, the company? Apparently you're still there. So even though I'm trying I'm to convince you here. to go to the beach, you're not, you're not <laughs> I am actually, um, catching a 5am flight, um, for Costa Rica tomorrow. Oh, there you so. go. Summer break, um, but callruby.com. Um, you can learn more about Ruby receptionists. Um, we have a resource page, all you know, filled with articles about how to help small businesses grow. Um, mostly focused on um, how to do it through delivering a great customer experience, but there's all kinds of tips there too. So I encourage you to check us out. Callruby.com. Jill Nelson, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, John, thank you so much for having me. It's a great pleasure.
Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W.